easy for people to get cynical. It's easy to feel like nothing's ever getting done. It's easy for people to be like, I don't actually know what the game is. It's easy for people to be like, hey, yeah, we're saying we're going to ship in 36 months or we're saying we're going to ship in, you know, Q3, but no one believes that. Like, every, and you, you ask anyone on the team, no one believes that. Like, and I think that when you get into that space where you're smushed between that rock and a hard place, where you know that there's that it's not working, but you feel like there's nothing you can really do, or that the only thing you can really do uh, employ is ha are half measures. That's where I think it's time to start zooming out a little bit and looking at those things you take for granted, those de big decisions you've made about the way that the studio works, the way that you collaborate, where your people are, all this stuff that we've been talking about, and start challenging those things. Because even if it's like a bomb level thing like it's like a nuclear bomb going off in your studio to like completely reorganize all these people or to shut this studio down and focus on these or hire a whole new team here or whatever it is whatever big change you think you'd need to make like if it cuts out a big chunk of that risk it might be worth it because again if you kick your chances of shipping a successful game from 15 percent up to 60%, that's insane. Now you've turned a, a likely failure into a coin flip. Welcome to Building Better Games, where we dive into what matters most in game development, leaders, and culture. Your hosts are Aaron Smith and Benjamin Carsage. Aaron and Ben are two veteran game industry leaders who have served a global audience of gamers and want to change how games are made. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Building Better Games, where we believe that better leaders equals better games. Um, today, we want to be talking about a set of problems that Aaron and I have encountered a lot as we've gone and worked with startups, midsize and large companies making video games. Patterns have emerged, and a lot of them relate to common mistakes people make when they think about game development. And so there's some of those we're going to try to call out. Uh, a lot of these are more organizational in nature, like they might be org design or things like that. And they're just, they're just often they're just assumptions. So that's what we're going to dive into today. Um, our frame for this, and I want to talk about this real quick, like the way Aaron and I tend to view organizations, and what we're trying to do when we join them is we want to be producing value and learning as rapidly as possible, as much as possible. And we view almost anything that gets in the way of that as an obstacle. How do we get to a place where value is regularly being produced by whatever teams we're working on yeah. or whatever companies we're trying to support. That's like in our heart of hearts, what we want to help you do is ship great games. That was the most fun part of our career. And the thing that kept us getting up in the morning was shipping great games. And we consistently see a lot of silly shit, frankly, that stops that from happening. So let's get into that and start yeah. talking about some of these major themes that we see. So the first one that um, I wanted to, to touch on is the, or introduces the more is always better fallacy. Um, this is one you wrote right at the, right at the top. Uh, yeah. More is always better. So the, the more is always better fallacy is something I 
see when there's like a business lens put on like a raw sort of like accounting lens, if you will, put on decisions that are made where it's like, okay, um, an example might be um, let's hire every engineer that we can find or, hey, I found out that there are 20 artists available and I made the executive decision to ask for them to be moved to our project. And this Mm -hmm. idea that sort of if you can just sort of fire a money cannon or a resource cannon at a problem that like results are going to be forthcoming. And I think more often than not, when we see companies and leaders approaching problems that way, it ends up creating way more problems than they had before. And they're very confused by that. Yeah. I gave you all these artists. Like, why are we going so slow? And it's like, it, you know, for, it could be, for example, that you, you had 20 artists, then you doubled that to 40 or you tripled that to 60, but you didn't add any more engineering staff. And so now your teams are completely lopsided and you have all these artists belting out art assets that couldn't possibly be implemented into the game in any reasonable time frame. You missed the forest for the trees, basically. Yeah, this is one, we actually see this fairly often and, and it, it's funny because so many people will say, oh, we know, we know that it's like the mythical man month, you know, nine women can't make a baby in a month. And like, we totally get that. We understand all those things. But when we plan projects from the beginning, when we've planned games out and we say like, oh, this is how, how things are going to go. There is often this idea that if we need to, we could just pull this big resource lever throw a ton of people on and they would solve it. And we don't realize that actually the opposite might happen. Yeah, there's there's also a mistake there, which is the, the idea that the um, the relationship between, you know, people on your team or adding people to your team and value created or work done is like a linear relationship. So that if I have two people on my team today, we get two units of value done. And if I had two more people, we instantly get four units of value done. And it's like, no, that's not the way it works. Um, In fact, adding those two new people is likely to slow down your existing two people in the beginning. So you actually probably will take a dip in value. And that goes, that is actually uh, probably exponential if you add a ton of people to the team. Like I had situations where I had a 30 to 50 person team that I doubled in size within 120 days and like a specific project I'm thinking of, and that ground the entire team's productivity to a halt. Like when I do, when I go to a project um, or any new project, whether it's one I work on or one that a client is working on that I'm helping them out with, one of the first things I try to understand is like how familiar is the team with the technology stack and the tools that they're using? How familiar is the team with each other like like with their operating principles, with the product they're trying to build, with uh, the working agreements they have and the way that they interact with each other, like all of these things. Because if the answer on any of those axes is not very well, that's okay. That's normal. That's how we all start out. But like you can't estimate cleanly with under those circumstances. Like you can't tell me five people create five units of work in a ver- with a very linear relationship, if those five people don't know how to work together and they don't know how to use the tools that they need to yeah. use to actually build the thing, like it takes them time to figure that out. When it, I, I think uh, I want to briefly 
talk about why. Because it, it essentially what we're saying is there's like a logarithmic value curve. Yes. Right. As you add people, you get sort of this logarithmic value curve. And um, and you really, I think you hit diminishing returns far sooner than a lot of people would like. Yes. Um, they're just like, no, I want to keep adding people and it'll go faster. It's like, yeah, you really like eventually reach a point where you get almost no extra speed from adding significant numbers of people to large projects. And to talk about why, when you think about it, and this is one of the reasons I think we all love um, and a lot of developers love working alone on something. Because if I'm working alone on something, it's like it's just my project, all right? I'm engineering it. I don't have to worry about anybody else's code. So I can just write it, all the variables I understand. I can see how all the pieces are fitting together. Same thing with art. Um, if I'm doing something and I'm doing all the art for it, or I'm doing all the design for it, I already have an, a full understanding of the creative space that I'm operating in because it's all coming from me. This limits the project's creativity to one person, but it has this advantage of that one person can move really fast, like shockingly fast sometimes. As soon as I had a second person, the reason you don't, you know, I was getting one unit of value and why don't I get two when I have a second person now? Well, you could go into like, well, it's because, you know, not everybody works with the same velocity. That's not even the point. The point is now I need to align what I'm doing with the other person. Now my code needs to fit with their code, right? Even if, even if I'm building entirely separate engineering systems, the whole point is if we're working on this together, it's because at some point they interact and we have to discuss mm -hmm. what those interactions look like. And so I immediately experience an overhead. And when there's, imagine a third person coming on, right? A third artist joins the two artists you had. Now what's our art style? Well, before it was the two of us negotiating. Now there's three of us talking about it. And suddenly we start really rapidly getting into a space where having somebody whose whole job it is to build alignment, to be an art lead or an engineering lead, like a tech lead or a design lead. They're just trying to create the space and hold that shape so that everybody can work effectively on the same thing without there being this massive sort of divergence of style from an engineering or art or design perspective. Mm -hmm. And the more people you add, the more that overhead starts impacting your ability to move quickly. So, you know, when I had five people, I added a lead and that lead was very helpful. But now I got to 20 people, one lead was no longer enough. So now I have two, but now I need a, like, is there a lead of leads? And, and you start developing layers inside of your organization just to keep everybody inside of the same rough style guide for whatever your expertise is. Yeah, and actually there's a, um... I don't want that. I would never want that to come off as like, well, you shouldn't have that many people or you should have a small team or anything like that. Because I think that there's another school of thinking, which is like by staying lean, you avoid a lot of those problems. And I think to, to some degree that that's true, but it's also a myopic view. I think yes. you just need to understand the those consequences. The most common like way that this mistake manifests, the like, hey, we have 10 people, so we'll get 10, 10 things done. And then if we get 20 people, we'll get 20 things done. And so I can draw a nice little chart that's going to show when all our features are going to get done. And it's like, maybe, um, but did you give those people time to get to know each other? Did you give those people time to figure out how to work together? Did you give those people time to like learn the new tools and technology and how your company works and all these things? Because that probably isn't on your feature roadmap and that is going to take longer like you it's so you have to keep these things in mind as you're building out your plans and that's a practical outcome 
Yeah, and it's not just that it takes time for everybody to come in. It's also, hey, we just pivoted our project. Okay, did we reset our timeline? <laughs> yeah. In video games, it happens constantly. And it's actually often a very good thing when a project says the thing we're working on isn't as compelling as we had hoped. This isn't as engaging a product. I don't think players are going to like this as much as we wanted. We need to pivot. So often, though, they leave the timeline that they had in place. And then they're just like, well, just pivot it live, you know, and and we'll pretend that that works. And we'll sort of, I, I view it as the fundamental denying of reality of the fact that, like, we've just pivoted sort of core theses of our game. And we expect that we can just continue to roll through the last five or six months of development and then ship, right? And it's actually like, no, you. a lot of things now need to be potentially revisited. You pivoted. And you may no longer have the, even the right people on the team. And that speaks to that idea of like, well, now when are we going to get them? How do we get them in? Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think that that kind of covers some of those. Um, yeah, more is always better. And there it's when I when I say all this, there's a part of me again that just recognizes, man, I, I can see the appeal of people who are just I just want to work on my own. I just want to be the only engineer on this. I just want to be the only artist. And there are advantages to that. The problem is you can't make you know, pick any of the like really huge successful games out there. You just can't make that if you're one person. Yeah. And that actually segues, I think, into one of these fallacies that you brought up earlier, which is when we optimize for the organization, like the structure, as opposed mm-hmm. to what is valuable. Um, and I, I, this is one of those ones I find so fascinating because I don't think we realize how often we do this. Um, I think a couple examples that pop up off the top of my head are, you know, we have seven senior producers across five offices and it's like, okay, well, do you have seven senior producers because that there's a value adding reason to have seven senior producers and there's work for whatever that means for seven senior producers? Or is it because you thought, well, we have six studios And so each studio needed a senior producer and then we needed a senior producer of those senior producers to to tie it all together with a nice bow. One of the things I, I wish people understood more and I think we understood more in game development is that um, bureaucracy, politics, organization, these things are so, sort of inextricably linked. And I think we're in a good place when we understand that those things have benefits mm-hmm. and we were trying to harness those benefits while keeping the downside as little as possible and trying to manage the downside. <clears throat> But I don't think people realize that those things naturally replicate. They're like viruses. They naturally create more of themselves. Like politics leads to more politics. Like organization and hierarchy lead to more organization and hierarchy. Yeah. Like we've all seen the logical outcome of that. When the organization, the bureaucracy just becomes so bloated, it's it's almost sort of like a meme of empires, right? Like that a country just gets more and more successful and more and more successful until eventually it crumbles under the weight of its own bureaucracy. Yeah. Like this is it's a sort of part of human nature. And, and I see it happen in organizations all the time. And I think one of the reasons why is because we don't take a step back and say, okay, who's doing what? What are the roles and responsibilities? How do we organize ourselves? And how much of those decisions that we are making is based on what makes great products for players and what results in 
great things getting done as opposed to like, well, obviously we need a guy to oversee this thing or obviously need we need um, a, a gal to, to, to make sure that these things don't go wrong. And it's like, well, maybe, but there's 10 other ways you could solve that problem. Maybe by removing some of the bureaucracy you already have, that wouldn't even be a problem anymore. And I think that that idea like thinking about both of these, the more is always better fall fallacy and the optimizing for the organization over value. Both of them, I want to come back to that idea of what we're trying to focus organizations, teams we work with and support on is, are you delivering value? If not, what's in your way? How do we get it out of your way? What don't you have that you need to be delivering value regularly, sustainably, um, you know, to be learning regularly, sustainably, to be iterating, because we live in a changing environment. That's why I emphasize learning there. And as you said, like, we want to be producing quality games that players love, and also that make us money so that we can keep doing that. So we can continue in the virtuous cycle of we produce great games and players love them and pay us money and we produce even more great games. And I think often in both of these fallacies, there's this idea that there's some ideal in a structural sense or in a headcount sense that we, we use in place of actually thinking about the needs of the organization as it relates to delivering value and producing great games. And we start focusing on that. And this one came up for me when I was managing a few people. They came and they asked me a question because there was a restructure going on and they were trying to figure out what do we do? We have all these new roles. So I think we need to put, make sure that like we put somebody in this role and someone in this role and someone in this role, and then we're going to need to hire these. And I was sort of like, you know, stop, you know, stop, stop. I want you to pause for a moment and think about rather than what the org chart and the team structure says you need in terms of leaders or engineers or whatever, and start asking, what does it mean for us to make a successful product? How are we going to build better platform tools? What's in our way? What would be the person, if we would hire them, that would most help us move quickly towards delivering value? And stop trying to worry about making sure the org chart is filled out. Because the org chart, it's, it is so generic in so many cases. And all we live in is specific circumstances. And so when you actually look at your world, you're like, well, well, actually, what is in the way? Oh, it's not that we don't have enough producers or enough uh, engineers or enough. It's actually that we really have a lot of trouble having them all work together successfully on the same thing. Cool. Adding more people is not likely to solve that. In fact, it might make it worse. So how do you go into that situation and say, okay, well, what would we do to get the obstacles out of the way to current collaboration so that value can happen um, and happen rapidly? I find myself asking why we do that. And I think, you know, I don't want to be pedantic about this because um, I really think almost every seasoned leader has got caught up in this at some point or another. And and I don't, I really don't believe it's as simple as, well, you're thinking about the organization. Why are you optimizing for the organization instead of what's valuable? That seems like a bad trade-off. Um, and, and as I think about it, and when I look at, uh, uh, you know, our clients or, or the, the companies we work with and see why they're ending up in those situations, I, I legitimately think it's because we take the organization for granted. Yes. That is often what we do. And, you know, I, I imagine, and, and when I say we take the organization for granted, I mean, we, we often don't communicate with each other or critically think about what's happening at that layer. 
It's like you know, it's, can, it's a can lower. Can I reword that? Sure. I, I'm curious what you think of this rewording. I think it's maybe it's not that we take it for granted. It's that we assume the organization is the most basic layer, like the 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 most fundamental thing we're all trying to work from is the organization rather than the product. Yeah, I, I maybe um, it, that could be. I'm not sure. When my when I think it through in my brain, it comes out as it's certainly something we assume we can't change. Like it's that, oh, that, that that's sense, what I yeah. mean when I say taking it for granted. It's like I don't even I'm almost programmed, I think, to assume that I am subject to that, whatever it is. Yeah. I think a lot of what leads us to those types of solutions is the idea that we can't change the the core setup of any of that. And yes. and I think that that is actually far less often the case than we believe it is. Right. Um, I think that is the core point here when we're talking about optimizing for an organization over value. It's not necessarily you deliberately choosing to focus on the structure instead of focusing on delivery or focusing on mm -hmm. the players. It's oftentimes that you are feeding the bureaucracy, you're feeding the hierarchy, you're feeding the organization without even realizing it because you've assumed it cannot change. Yes. And this comes back, I think, to that idea of, I'm, I'm just going to keep harping on this probably this whole episode. Instead, if you do orient through the lens of how do I help this product succeed? How do I help the audience be satisfied? How do I help our players receive a good game? And I am willing to cut all the corners and the other things in order for that to be true in a sustainable way. When you start orienting that way, you know, you and I both know a guy named Martin who saw a structure much like the one you described and just said, well, I'm just going to go take my team and move them into the other org mm -hmm. because that's who we're working with. And people were like, not happy about that. They're like, wait a minute. We have a structure. We have an organization. There's a hierarchy that you need to walk up and then go down the other side. And he was just like, I don't care. I am trying to serve that team right now so that their product can go out in on the, the platform, the mobile space I'm trying to operate in. And so I'm just going to go work with them. And then I don't have to worry about the big meeting where we have the status sheet and did I fill out all the blocks properly because I'm just talking with them all the time. Yeah, the cha the I think the takeaway there is you challenge that organizational assumption. You're able yes. to sort of as you, you know, as you game producers or game leaders think about the problems that you're trying to solve and why there are these barriers that seemingly slow you down and get in the way of you adding value, make sure that you're able to surf down to that organizational layer. Think about how yes. the teams are set up. Think about who's working where and, and, and what the costs of collaboration are due to decisions you've made about how you organize and how your system is set up and challenge those things. Because you may actually find that some of them are simpler to change than you had originally thought. Mm -hmm. And if you can change at that layer, you're gonna get a cascading impact with a lot less headache. How easy it is for one person to interact with another person makes a big difference in where collaboration happens and why. And that was fundamentally what, what you know, in this case, Martin was trying to solve for. He's just like, I just don't wanna go through a lot of barriers for my engineers to be talking to their engineers 
about what it means for us to succeed together. And the easiest way for me to do that is to sit them next to each other and have them in similar meetings and have them a, a very short walk away. And now we will be better at delivering value. That, that leads into uh, our next kind of fallacy um, or, or maybe our, you know, you can call it a naivete. How you set up the organization is going to create a certain amount of collaboration cost. And that needs to be considered because one of the things I find fascinating that I consistently see is I don't understand why we're moving so slow. I hear this all the time. We're moving so slow. Nobody's getting any work done. Why does it take so long? Why is everything taking so long? And then you look at the way that the, those organizations are laid out and, the, and some of those fundamental decisions that they've made and they come with an insanely high collaboration cost. And, and earlier, Ben, before we started, we were chatting and I mentioned this uh, from the standpoint of remote work. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I find frustrating about the remote work com conversation is, is it's, it's almost taken on this kind of like personal slash moral dimension to it, which is like, is more, is, or is, uh, is remote work fundamentally good or bad? Is it better or worse? And it's like, we, we look for that binary kind of like, which side do I pick? Which side am I on? And this, and, and, you know, that aside, one of the things I wish we could just get on the same page about is that certainly these types of arrangements, remote work, cross-functional versus not cross-functional, different time zones, like these things affect our ability to collaborate. Like I don't see how it's an unassailable position that if I put four people in the same room together, they can collaborate more easily than if they're on four different time zones and four different offices or at four different houses. I'm not trying to say that remote work is better or worse than office work. What I am trying to say that there's an implied collaboration cost when you make decisions about how to set your people up and you have to understand what those consequences are because I, I think that that's what creates a world where a lot of these bosses, leaders are, are looking and going like, why is everything taking so long? Well, it's taking so long because you have you know, uh, six artists in Mexico and an engineer, you've got a, a product lead in England and you've got four designers and four engineers in Amsterdam. And it's like, well, y yeah, that's hard. That's really hard. Just to, to get all those people on the same page about one thing that gets done takes a long time. Probably, yes. probably at least 24 hours because of like some people are asleep when we made that decision. So like right. these these things have to be taken into account. And, and so our advice there again for you all is don't underestimate the impact of the structure that you build and the decisions you've made about how your people are organized, where they exist on their ability to collaborate with each other and get work done. Yeah. Well, and, and to come back to that idea of like, what would we recommend? What I would recommend as much as possible, have teams that are working on the same thing be co-located insofar as that is possible, right? And that may be within a studio, within a time zone, something, uh, within even like the same Slack channels, how, however you handle what it means for us to be a unit together, 
have all the people that are working on the thing together be in those be in that same grouping and in, in our you know we live in a remote world now i get it those should be the people that you're mostly interacting with or the people around you who are working on the same thing you are and if you decide to suddenly hire somebody that's four time zones away or 10 time zones away and they're going to be working with you on the same stuff recognize that it that's a burden on everybody on that team that person's iterations are going to be reviewed less often by everybody else because they just can't work and have it reviewed and work and have it reviewed and work and have it reviewed they have to work and then wait one thing i want to call out there by the way that's closely related to what you're talking about because i know what you mean when you're saying hey make sure all the people that are working on the same thing are in the same place but i've yeah. you know you and i as know, much as possible well you and i both know though, from experience that working on the same thing, we can take for granted what that means. But the reality is, is there's not uniform agreement in our industry about what that means. An example is the, 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 the ever raging debate between whether to orient my organization towards discipline structure. So like all the artists are together, all the designers are together, all the engineers are together, and they have to proverbially get up to go communicate with one of the other disciplines. Like that's the way we've organized, mm -hmm. still very common in game development, less common, mm -hmm. but still common versus the cross functional approach where you have a product goal and then you have, you know, one of each person from the different disciplines working together. When you say the pe same people working together or the people working together on the same thing, you mean cross-functionally. Yes. I am specifically talking about the product. We're not game, saying the, to the, make the, a the piece of art. Yes. You know, like, so there, there's a, an important distinction there. And, and I think to go a point further on that, you know, Ben, Ben and I have always explained this to leaders as, Hey, you can do either. You can do discipline orientation, or you can do cross-functional orientation for how you position people. Um, but there are trade-offs for both. And you have to understand what you're optimizing for. Yeah. So when you have a discipline-oriented structure, you're optimizing for inter, inner inside of discipline communication, right? Yes. And um, there are some companies where they really value that, where they're like, hey, we really want all of our designers to be on the same page. And we'd rather them have to effectively work a little bit harder to collaborate with the engineers. Now, this is all common sense. I feel like there's a massive strain now in the world we live in today, post-pandemic, with all of the remote work changes that has taken what seemingly might have been a, a manageable trade-off there on that side and turned it like exponentially insane. Yeah. Um, which is like, okay, now your artists are in one time zone and your engineers are in a completely different time zone. And so now like that little micro thing that little micro communication that you need to just get one task all the way over to the finish line and actually get it implemented into the game now has like multiple iteration cycles of days to get back and forth. And this, this is one of those things where it's like, I think that that one probably caught us a little bit unawares. Now, like I, again, when I hear companies saying, why is everything so slow? Well, I think, Hey, well, you know, if you have to bounce across three different time zones to get one uh, you know, story or one little feature piece of value, something that actually matters. Exactly. It's that's an extraordinary amount of overhead to get that thing and, and time delay to get right. that thing over the finish line. And, and I think these are the things we're going to have to really like come and revisit the story, uh, um, 
that's a real story of an animator I was working with doing content creation. And at the time we needed design to do hookups and he'd just been struggling and struggling to get work done. We rearranged some seating and he ended up next to a designer and he came to me the next day and said, I got more work done today than I did in the last three weeks. And he attributed it entirely to the fact that he could just turn to his side and be like, hey, can you hook this up for me? And five minutes later, his thing was hooked up. And so he was able to just iterate incredibly rapidly. And, and it just unlocked him to just like, I was putting things in game, stuff was going live, I was seeing it, but actually like seeing it live in game and able to run around. And it was amazing. Some people would have looked at that and said, oh, your animators are going slow, let's hire more animators. And it's, well, yeah, that's one way to solve it. Or you could... But as we discussed earlier, those new designers or animators are going to slow all your, the ones that were already bottlenecked, at least in the short term, slow them down even more. Yes. And they're going to overwhelm the designers. As they, as they learn how to do design and animation at yeah. your studio the way you need it done, right? Exactly. And, and so you could, you could do something else, which is put your designers next to your animator. You could do something else which is build a tool set that the animator doesn't need the designer to do his job. And those are difficult options in both cases, but they may be worth it. Yeah. And they may be much better than hiring more people to solve a perceived slowness inside of a discipline. So we're on this topic of thinking of things term purely in terms of like flat cost. Again, I, I see this a lot today um, as you know, game, video games have become big business in the last like 20 years specifically, mm -hmm. which is like, what is our balance sheet? Like, where are we spending money? How are we allocating capital? And again, these things are necessary from an accounting perspective, right? However, again, I do think of thinking of things purely in terms of flat cost is, is full of fallacy. Mm -hmm. It's like, is this thing cheaper than that? Or uh, does it cost this month? Must Does it cost this much or that much? As opposed to, what is your burn rate for the amount of value you're creating? That helps you understand what your cost really is. Mm -hmm. Because cost is can take an invisible form and it can take a visible form. The visible form cost takes is, hey, we just signed a $20,000 check for these services. An invisible form that cost takes is we've had these six engineers working on this feature for the last four months and they've produced nothing because of something busted in our organization. I much prefer somebody to write a check and be like, well, that didn't work, than, than basically to find out like four months later that we like something we didn't even think about. We, we assumed that that was just gonna be value and then it didn't produce any value at all. Yeah. Another example of this that kind of links into some of the stuff we talked about previously is there's two different engineers you can get in two different countries. One of them costs 60,000 a year, the other one costs 150,000 a year. But the $60,000 a year one is likely to work at 15% the pace because he's really, 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 or she's really, really, really far away from all of the people who know what the product requirements are and can communicate those. So is that actually a $60,000 engineer or is that a $240,000 engineer? And again, I'm being reductionist here with my math, um, but you get what I'm saying, right? There's more to think about when it comes to these decisions than just tell me how much it costs. You know, we've seen, we've seen also like, wow, I, I got such a great deal on this outsourcing art studio. 
but do we need that? <laughs> like right. if we right. add that tomorrow, is that going to actually increase our ability to get the stuff we know is important done? Yeah. We often don't ask that question. We just go, well, it's a really good deal. This reminds me of something. You and I are both part of uh, certain like uh, the consultant networks. I don't know. Uh, there, there's companies basically where they they get asked like, hey, can you find me some people who are experts in a thing? And we'll, we want to talk to them for an hour about a particular topic. I've done some of these as it relates to video game development. How much is it going to cost me to make an FPS, AAA, modern you know, a game, Ben, is it going to be 12 million or 17 million? Go. <laughs> yeah. No. And, and honestly, like that, that is the sort of question. If you're out there and you're thinking about hiring one of these companies, please stop asking this question. Like it's a terrible <laughs> question. It, and, and I get those things all the time. Well, how many people do you need to make an FPS? And it's like, and, and I think, I think there's a, there's a struggle in my mind because at Seven. one level I'm like, a, I'm, I don't want to come off as I want to let you know that that question makes no sense. And so I start asking questions. Um, and I think sometimes when I start asking questions, people are like, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And I'm like, the question is terrible. It's a terrible question. So what type of, what type of FPS? Oh, it's, it's like destiny. Okay. Okay. It's like destiny. Like, what do you mean? It's like destiny. What is it? You mean it's sort of a faux MMO style, like team shooter, with PvP and PvE elements and raids and like so much goes into what does it take to make a game that when we try to view it as a set of people we're going to buy and and pay and put on salary for some number of months, you know, well, how many people do I need in ideation? You know, okay, I need six people and I need these different, I need an artist and a designer and an two engineers and a product lead and, you know, I don't know, like an executive producer who's going to take us to our vision, right? Uh, all right, great. I've got my, I've got my, my core six. What do I need in pre-production? Well, you need these 30 people and these are the disciplines. And, and we act like we're doing actual work when we talk about this stuff. We act like Oh, well, if I, I could break it all down and show you, like, this is why you need two QA in pre-production and 10 in production. It's like, none, none of this is real. This is all imaginary. Because where we're starting is, if I had $300 million and a, and a company, a game company, how many games could I make? How many FPSs could I make? How many people would I have to hire to create a product that would make my $300 million even more? All of that work is in large part unknown. I can give you ranges, but they're ridiculously broad. And anybody mm -hmm. who says that they can like, nope, this is what you need and this many and this many, they're trying, they're, they're pretending that the value we produce can somehow be quantified by the amount of work we generate. And that if you just make sure you set up a world where like, you know, X amount of work can be generated, then eventually that work will become something useful. It is totally not true. And so many game companies, other companies have stumbled and fallen because of that, because yeah. they think if I just build enough stuff, eventually it will be good. How many WoW killers came out after WoW? You know, 2004 WoW launches, its biggest competitor is supposed to be EverQuest 2. That didn't work out for EverQuest 2. And WoW just took off. And all these other games came out and they're like, we're going to do it better. We're going we're gonna to beat this game. And so many of them threw so much money at that problem. 
and they didn't succeed. And they didn't succeed for a whole ton of reasons. And I don't fault them for not succeeding because it's unbelievably hard to make a game of any level of quality that people want to play over and over and over and over again. But I know that a lot of them were built on the idea that maybe if I just throw money and people at a problem, I can produce a great game. And it's that, that's not how this works. You have to be focused on the player. You have to be focused on the value you're producing. You have to be thinking about what's in getting in the way. It's not as simple as I spent this money, I got these great contributors, I'm gonna put them on this team and now the team is gonna be great. It's, yeah. it's, it's a one-dimensional view of a three or four-dimensional problem. Yeah, we, we've both seen multiple times the idea of let me assemble a super team of only the most senior, most experienced, best people from all the disciplines. And what's interesting to me is how often that fails. Often because those individuals are less interested in learning from each other than just doing what they're expert at. Yeah, and I just really want to nail that point. Both Ben and I have been in situations multiple each, I think, if I recall correctly, where we've had low-performing teams, low-performing teams that did not produce the sufficient amount of value, where our solution mm -hmm. to fixing those low-performance teams was to remove the single most mechanically talented person on that team. Yes. That should tell you everything you need to know. That is more complicated than just star power, right? Yes. The through line is learning. And if that person, if that star that you had to remove is not interested in learning, then they're not going to help. And the reason learning matters so much in game development is, you know, we did a podcast last time with JMac. Change is the absolute. Change is the constant. Things are constantly going to be shifting under your feet. A fallacy that we didn't write down is that idea of like, I know what I need to do, or I know what we need to do. Why can't we just do it? Why don't we just do it? Why do we keep talking? Why do we keep trying to figure this out? Like, why don't we just do what we need to do? And so often that comes from uh, an arrogance um, and a place of like uh, just not understanding the complexity of the situations that we actually live in and the, the hard parts of game development and software engineering in general. It is, it is much more complex than any of us can fully understand um, and I think we hate that about it. Yeah. There's one more thing I want to cover before um, we finish up, um, which is kind of putting all this stuff in a nice package and talking about this idea of compounding risk. So we've talked about all these different things that can create barriers in your team's efforts to create value, right? One of the things that's really important to understand is not just any of one of these things in isolation, but the total effect of all of the strategic and organizational decisions that have been made and how that affects your overall success rate. It's really, really important because we've seen that when these things get stacked on top of these things, you can get to a place where your ability to impact change and like really affect your outcomes becomes this narrow little slice. It's easy for people to get cynical. It's easy to feel like nothing's ever getting done. It's easy for people to be like, I don't actually know what the game is. It's easy for people to be like, hey, yeah, we're saying we're going to ship in 36 months or we're saying we're going to ship in, you know, Q3, but no one believes that. Mm -hmm. Like every, and you ask anyone on the team, no one believes that. Like, and I think that when you get into that space where you're smushed between that rock and a hard place, 
where you know that there's that it's not working, but you feel like there's nothing you can really do, or that the only thing you can really do uh, employ is ha- are half measures. That's where I think it's time to start zooming out a little bit and looking at those things you take for granted, those de- big decisions you've made about the way that the studio works, the way that you collaborate, where your people are, all this stuff that we've been talking about, and start challenging those things. Because even if it's like a bomb level thing, like it's like a nuclear bomb going off in your studio to like completely reorganize all these people or to shut this studio down and focus on these or hire a whole new team here or whatever it is, whatever big change you think you'd need to make. Like if it cuts out a big chunk of that risk, it might be worth it because again, if you kick your chances of shipping a successful game from 15% up to 60%, that's insane. Now you've turned a, a likely failure into a coin flip. Yeah, no, I, I I love that. And I think, you know, it's funny, we didn't actually talk that much about a couple other common problems. We see things like sunk cost, um, but that relates to what you were just talking about to some degree. We didn't talk about lack of vision, lack of a clear understanding of what the product was, but those those also exist and are out there. But I think I think we're we're pretty good for right now. We can cover those other ones some other time. Yeah, I would love to have us come back and for you all to uh you know, we talked a lot about the sort of some of these what causes these models to break and what doesn't work and some of the fallacies that we run into. Um, I think a, a follow-up conversation, which we will do in a future episode, is Okay, cool. You're starting from scratch. You know, we'll, we'll do play money. You have, you know, your five million dollars or whatever, and you're starting a game studio. Um, and again, there's obviously a lot of variance there in how that uh, goes. But what are the things that you would optimize for? Uh, so, what what would be a good way, a good principled way to approach this, and how would you allocate capital, resources, time, effort in a way that created the right kind of results? So that's something we can dig into um, next time. Cool. All right. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Building Better Games. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening to Building Better Games with Aaron and Ben. If you have comments, questions, or would like to work with Ben and Aaron, shoot an email to info at valarinconsulting.com. That's info at V-A-L-A-R-I-N consulting.com. Please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Valarin Inc. We'll catch you next time.